0: Good morning. My name is Vivian, and I'm from Lumberton, North Carolina. And it's a real pleasure to be here this morning. I've been a member of Avalon for almost ten and a half years now, and you know, for me, it gets better and better each year. When I first came to Al-Anon, I didn't want to be there. I hated it with a passion. I sit in those rooms and I said, there's nothing wrong with me. I said, it might work for you, but I'm different. And I set out, I think, to prove just how different I was. You know, in Illinois, we hear the term sometimes by the EA people, the suffering. Little Illinois. But I'd like to introduce you to my suffering alcoholic. And when I get done, you'll know exactly why I say the suffering (laughs) alcoholic. James, would you stand up? I think you'll understand when I finish my talk that I really mean it when I say that I'm grateful truly grateful that I married an alcoholic. Because if I had not done so, I think today I would have been dead. Because I was almost dead before I got to the program of Aleman. Spiritually, physically, mentally. You know, I had nothing to offer anyone. And no one hated themselves worse than I did me. I felt like I wasn't good enough for anyone. By the time I got to this program, I had seven children and, you know, I didn't understand that I was rearing them in the same kind of home that I had grown up in. I didn't remember how I had hated my father and mother. The fear that Libba talked about last night being a a ball in the pit of your stomach. You know, I knew exactly what she was talking about. Because that's the one feeling I remember above all others when I was growing up. You see, I was raised in a family where alcohol was abundant. My father was a bootlegger. And I often used to wonder how he ever made any money because... He drank and drank and drank. I have seven brothers and they were carbon copies with my father for a great number of years. I have ten sisters and I was the 15th in this group of kids and needless to say when we were growing up we did not get a lot of attention. I never knew what it was like for my mother to put her arms around me and say I love you. I never knew what it was like for my father to touch me in any way except in violence. Because I grew up in a home where violence is an everyday thing. I remember on occasions when my father would try to kill my mother. I think the one memory that stays with me more than any other is when we were on the school bus one day, and I think I was about seven years old, all the kids had run to the bus window, and I was sitting at the back, and, you know, I looked up to see what was happening, and my father was chasing my mother with an axe. Those were things that happened almost on a weekly basis. On one occasion, I remember him using a knife on her all the way down the back. I remember her her being in a ditch and him standing over her and saying, I'll bury you right here. So I knew what violence was like. And I told myself, I don't want to be like this. But you know, I became like my father. I became the abuser, even though I did not drink. But as much as I didn't want to be like my father, I didn't want to be like my mother either. Because I fought. You know, some of this is her fault. You know, when the fights would start, and she would start fighting with him or either would take whatever he was giving her that day. Sometimes she fought back, sometimes she didn't. You know, we learned to hide, and I had my own special little hiding place. We had a house that set up on blocks, and it had a chimney at one end. And under that house, I had dug myself a hole. And I'd put an old tobacco sheet in it, and I would crawl in that hole sometimes, and I would hide. Because that's the only place that I felt safe. You see, sometimes our mother would shut us up in a room and she would forget we were there and there was no way of getting out. And sometimes it seemed like she had it in especially for me because I grew up in a family that thought I was retarded because by the time I had started school, I had retreated into silence. I didn't talk to anyone. I no longer cried. I had learned to hide my feelings. I grew up in a family where I was also sexually molested. I knew what it was like for a brother to take me out in an old corn crib and throw me face down and do what he felt like with me. So I know what it's like to have fear. I know what it's like to hate because that's what I grew up with. My father died when I was approximately eight years old. And, you know, I remember the day that my sister came and told us, she said, my daddy's dead. And she said, I don't want you kids crying, and I don't want you raising a fuss. And I remember thinking to myself, why should I cry? Why should I cry? And I didn't understand that. But I understood what she meant when she said he wouldn't be back anymore. And I was glad. I was glad that my father was dead. Because somewhere in my mind I told myself, you yeah, know, he can't hurt me anymore. But when he was living, he was the dominant force in our life. And when he died, all my seven older brothers, had become almost carbon copy for him, and they took up where he left off. I remember my brothers abusing my mother, and I thought, why don't she take us away? Why doesn't she just take us somewhere where this doesn't happen? But what she did was take herself away. By the time she died, I hated my mother more than I thought was possible. And I was almost 15 years old when she died. But you see, a couple of years after my father died, she left. She got away. She found her freedom, such as it was. She took us to church one night, and she left us sitting in church. And we should have known that something was up then because we were not usually taken to church. I did not know what God was all about. I hadn't no earthly idea that there was a loving God that he could change our lives. So she got up and walked out, and she said, I'm going to the bathroom. I'll be back in a little while. Her little while turned into years. And us children were separated and gifted different ones in the family. And I learned to hate and hate and resent and fear That's what my childhood was all about. I got married for the first time when I was 13 years old. And my family, my sister, signed for me to get married because she thought that this was a way of getting rid of a problem. And I was indeed a problem at that time. And she was just thankful that she had found an older man that would take me. And he was a lot older than I was. After we came from the marriage chapel at Dillon, South Carolina, to pack my clothes, you know, I heard my brother talking about all the things that were going to happen to me that night. And I think a fear gripped me that I'd never known before, and I knew that I could not, absolutely could not live with him. And I begged my family to let me stay. And, you know, out of all the other 17, I had no one that would take me in. My sister told me, he'll be good to you now you go with him. But what I did was run away. And it started a pattern for me that I continued up until the time I got into Avalon. When things got too tough for me to handle, I would just shut it out or run away when it got dark I sneaked out of the house that day and I made my way down the edge of the woods and it was several miles into town and I walked the streets until I found an empty house and I went around to the back door and I went in and I stayed in that house for several weeks I slept in the bathtub I placed old curtains in there that I had found in the house and in the daytime there was a store behind the house. I would go to the dumpster behind the store or I would walk down the aisles of the store till I thought no one was looking and I would pick up whatever I could to eat. And that's how I lived at the to 13 years old. So I knew what it was like to be homeless also. When I'd been there probably three weeks, a lady come in the house one day while I was sleeping, and she wanted to know what I was doing there. And I told her I had nowhere else to go. She wanted to know if I had parents, if I had a family, and I told her no, that I was alone. And you know, she believed me, and she took me home with her, and she let me stay with her for the next couple of years. I helped her with her children and she was probably the only mother, the only thing that I let myself become close to, because I grew to care a great deal about her. But You know, years later when she was dying and she said, will you come to the hospital and see me? I said, no. I was so mentally sick that I couldn't go. you see I got a lot worse as years progressed when I was almost 16 years old I met a soldier from Fort Bragg and I started dating him and I dated him until he got out of the service and he asked me to marry him and so I agreed to the two years that I had lived with this lady she had also had the first marriage known you know, at this time, I knew that I had a guardian that was up at the bank. And I knew that when my daddy died, he had left a great deal of money. And it had been divided between all of us children. And she went up and talked to him, and she had enough money from him to have the marriage and old. And as quick as that was done, you know, I was married again. And this man lived in Ohio, and I figured this would be a better way that I could just leave the state and... Whatever I had to go through would be all right because he would take care of me. It would be a new start. And it wasn't all bad, not to start with. I knew that he drank. But you see, up until this time, I had not connected alcohol as being the problem. I thought the people were mean that drank alcohol. But he seemed to be a little bit different and he seemed to care about me and that meant a great deal to me right then. this marriage I have five living children and two dead children. I have four girls living and one son and two dead daughters. And You know by the time I was 21 my life had changed drastically because he had also changed you see the disease had progressed in him too. And when he started hitting me you know I thought this was what I deserved if I could just be a little bit better. You know, things wouldn't happen like this. And if I had to go to a hospital, which I did on several occasions, you know, I learned to lie. I learned not to let people know that I lived like this because I thought it was my fault. It was my shame. And if people knew the way I lived, that they wouldn't want anything to do with me because I wasn't good enough. After one particularly bad episode where he had broken my jaw and I had also discovered that there were several other women, I decided that I was going to divorce him and I was going to move back to North Carolina. And I had decided at the time that I really didn't like being married, that I wanted no part of it. Alcohol was not the problem. Men were my problem. And if I could just stay away from them, you know, I was going to be all right. But, you know, I was back in North Carolina two months before I was married again. That lets you know just how sick I was and how good I could stay away from a man. But I would met a man that was a little bit younger than I was, and he seemed a little bit different. You know, I knew he drank because I had started buying his alcohol for him before we ever got married. And I'd also tried to drink with him. In fact, on one occasion, he bought me a fifth of sleep rooms, And I really decided that I wanted to be like him. So I turned that bottle up without a chaser, And, you know, within less than an hour, I had drank that whole fifth of liquor. And, you know, somewhere during that period, and after that, I met his mother. <laughs> so years later, when he told her... He's a drinker. If she'd just leave that booze alone, you know, we'd be all right. But that was my one and only experience with the liquor. But he always told me, don't you ever let my mama know I drink. And, you know, I told his wife, and I didn't let his mama know, and I didn't let his granddaddy know. And I was resentful because I said to myself, I'm the one he's supposed to love, and he doesn't care if I know he drinks. And I didn't understand. But we had a lot of good times in the beginning when we were dating. You know, things changed drastically after we got married because within two weeks we were separated because of the drinking. You see, he also had one other thing then. And back then I was a little bit slimmer than I am now. He also had a bad case of jealousy. And when I had divorced my other husband and moved back to North Carolina, I had bought a real nice car. And he decided that this was a gift from someone else, that he was going to get rid of it. So one day we were coming from the beach, and we were just cruising along about 55 miles an hour. And, you know, he hold of the steering wheel. And almost immediately we were upside down in the ditch. And he was so drunk that he couldn't stand up. And the state patrol came and they said, was he driving? I said, no. And for some reason, they didn't want to believe me. They wanted to arrest him. We went home that day and it didn't take me long because he's was in a little Clorox box. And that's what I always seem to use was a little Clorox (laughs) box. because that night it was raining and his clothes was sitting on the porch and, you know, he come in and he wanted to know what was in that box and I said, these are your things. I said, you can take them and go. And he did. He left and he stayed a few weeks and, you know, he came back and uh, he talked real sweet. You know, you can all talk real sweet when you have one or two or three... And, you know, if he had stayed at one or two or three, you know, that would have been just fine with me because he could tell me the things that I wanted to hear. You know, he could tell me how sweet I was, how pretty I was, how good I was to live with someone like him. And, you know, I ate that up. And after he got into AA, I tried to get him to go back to drinking because I missed that. But he came back that time and uh, he said, I'm not going to drink like this anymore. He said, if you'll just take me back this time, we won't have any more fights. We won't have any arguments because I won't drinking as much. And I believed him because I needed to believe him. And also at that time I had found out that I was pregnant. But before those twins were born, we were separated again. And you know, this time it wasn't so easy to patch things up because we had, had a physical fight. And I didn't do like I had done in my other marriage. I didn't do like I had seen my mother do. I learned what a joy it was to match blow for blow. I learned to fight. And in time, I learned to fight real dirty. You know, I'm not proud of the things that I did. But I don't apologize for them anymore either because I know today that I did what I had to to survive. And I also know today that I'm a survivor and that I'm a worthwhile person. But after he came back this time, he stayed sober because he had convinced me that he wasn't going to drink anymore. And things were good. We learned to love each other, I think, in a way that we had not known before. You know, for the first time in my life, I think I really let myself get close to a person. And it hurt when he went back to drinking. It really hurt. Because the fight started almost immediately. And I did things then that I'm not proud of. You know, when he'd come in some nights and he would be so drunk that he could hardly stand up, I would pick up a shoe or whatever was available. And I would stand there and I would beat him. I remember on one occasion we had planned on going to New Orleans with his mother and He had promised me that day that he wasn't going to drink. He said, when I finish this bottle, this is going to be it. And you know, once again, I believed him, because I needed to. But also, at that time, I also watched out the windows a lot. Did any of you ever do that? And I saw him pull the old car into the backyard. And I saw him take one bottle and pour it into the other. You see, when that bottle got empty, he wasn't going to drink anymore, but he was going to make damn sure that it didn't get empty. (laughs) (laughs) And by the time he came into the house, he was very drunk. He was staggering. And he walked past me into the living room, and he turned his back and sat down. And when he walked past me that day, I think a feeling of hopelessness a feeling of rage, a feeling of just not caring came over me. And I picked up an old tennis shoe that was laying on the floor. And I walked into the living room where he was sitting there and he was barely able to sit up. And I beat him. And I beat him. And I beat him. You know, I was standing there with tears streaming down my face. That was the first time that I had let myself cry in a long, long time. But I beat him until I was no longer able to do it anymore. And I had the sickest semen inside Because I think I realized that day just what an animal I had become. You know, when you abuse another human being, it doesn't make you feel good. And I felt completely worthless. I think at that time, too, I completely lost all hope of anything ever being different. About that time, too, I started thinking about suicide. Because I had seen my mother try it. I had seen her try to shoot herself. I remember on one occasion where she went into a room and picked up a gun and was trying to blow her brains out, and one of my brothers took the gun away from her. And he and one of my other brothers started fighting over the gun, and when the other one got hold of it, he took it and handed it back to her and told her to go ahead. He said, we'll be better off if you're home. And I remember picking up those bottles of sleeping pills on one occasion. And I had told my husband that I was going to do it. And he laughed and he dared me. And I poured the bottle of pills into my hand and I swallowed the pills. And I remember going to sleep thinking, this will all be over. But I also remember coming, too, because there was not enough pills. And I remember him sitting on the bed beside of me. And when I opened my eyes, he spit in my face. And he told me, You bitch, you couldn't even do this right. I didn't think there was anything worse that I could feel than the pain that I felt that day. But you know I was wrong. Because the pain after sobriety was even worse than the pain that I felt that day. My children were growing up, and they hated me. They had a good relationship with their father, but they hated me. And I didn't understand it. Because he stayed drunk, and I told myself I put food on the table. I paid the bills. I said, why can't they understand that I love them? But you know, I was doing like my mother and father had done. I didn't say I love you. I didn't put my arms around my children. What they saw were the times that I would walk up behind my husband and pick up a knife and threaten to slit his throat. What they saw were the times that I picked up a gun and one of them would be tugging at my arm and said, Mama, don't hurt Daddy. Please don't hurt Daddy. That's what my children saw. And we were a sick family. I can't stand here today and put into words to you how sick our family became. And I still see some of it today in my children. And sometimes I cry because I know that I contributed to a lot of it. After my husband had gotten into trouble on several occasions, wound up with several DUIs, you know, they sent him to treatment. And by that time, I didn't really care what happened to him or what happened to me. You know, I had thought about killing him on a lot of occasions, but I also knew that if I killed him, I'd also have to kill myself. I figured somebody would take care of the kids and they'd be better off without me. But, you know, he tricked me. He got in AA, and I told myself this was another gimmick. This won't work, and I went with him to a few meetings while he was in treatment. I'd go meet him, and you know, we'd go to meetings, and I'd listen, but I knew this was a trick on his part, so the day he got out of treatment, I took him to a bar. You know, this was my birthday, and I was going to celebrate. I didn't drink, but we had to go to that bar because it was the only one that had just what I wanted. And when we went into that bar and we sat down that day, I began to feel uneasy. And he began to feel uneasy. And we got up and we walked out. And we went to an AA meeting that night because he wanted to go. At this time, it really didn't matter to me. I was just tagging along for the ride. He began to go to AA meetings on a regular basis, and I would go to a few Al-Anon meetings, and I would sit in those meetings, and I'd, I'd tell myself, this is not for me. You know, if they really know what I'm like, they won't talk to me. And once in a while, they would call on me to read, and if they did that, I would pass. And the next meeting, I wouldn't go because I didn't want to be singled out. You know, at one time, I could not even walk into a room in front of him. I was so afraid. I was always in a shadow with somebody else. If there were people around, I would stand behind someone hoping no one would notice me, and that's how I sat in those meetings. And You know, I would go to A-A meetings, and I'd see all the smiles, and I'd see them holding hands. And Like my husband at that time, I also had a bad... Texas jealousy because I had been shut out of everyone's life and I saw myself being shut out once more. And, you know, if he would get up and read or if he would share me a meeting and call on a pretty girl, you know, by the time he got home, I would be raised in hell because I didn't like it. I just knew that he wanted to go with this one or that one, you know. My son at this time was 16 years old. And he's the only son I have. I have six girls and one boy. And I had always loved him dearly. He knew that. But you see, the day before this, I had picked up something and I had beat him with it. And I had left marks all over him and him 16 years old. I worked a third shift job at that time. I went on to work that night and I came home the first thing the next morning and I went on to bed. And when I got up about noontime time, I asked one of the girls where Philip was, and she said, Mama, he's gone. And I run upstairs to check his closet and to check the suitcases and she was right, he was gone. And I had a pretty good idea where he had gone to that day. You see, I had a couple of older daughters, one of them I had not seen in three years, because she didn't want me to be a part of her life. She also had two children that I had not seen. And I went to her house that day, and I asked her if Philip was there, and she said yes. I said, well, you have him come on out? And she said no. You know, he was afraid to come out and talk to me. But my daughter was not afraid of me that day. I saw her look at me with all the hate that I had looked at my mother with years before. And I had not said anything. But she looked at me that day, and I could see it in her eyes. I could see the hate. And she just wanted me to leave. But she told me some things that day that was necessary for my recovery. Because she looked at me and she said, Mama, she said, I hate you. She said, I don't ever want to see you again. Get out of my life. And I thought my heart would break. And it's necessary for me to remember that when I talk. Because that's what happened. That's what put me on the road to recovery. That is what made me look at me, to know that I couldn't justify what I was doing anymore. You know, the physical violence had stopped. You don't walk up to a sober man and pop him upside the head and get away with it. Let me tell you that. But I left that day without my son. And I went back home and we have an old two story house, much like some of the ones down here in Georgia. And I sat down on my front porch and I cried for hours because I didn't know what else to do. All I wanted to was just die so the pain would go away. I was tired. James came out of the house that night and he asked me if I'd attend a meeting with him. And I didn't think about it being a closed meeting on Thursday night, but when we got there, you know, it was a closed meeting and I had to go into the al meeting. And I sat in a little corner that I always sat in when I went in that room, and, you know, I sat there with tears in my face. And I cried, and, you know, no one said, What's wrong? Because they knew. We and anon know without asking when another has tears in their eyes. We know what they're feeling because we've been there ourselves. But you know, somewhere during that meeting, a conscious thought came to me. The first conscious, rational thought that I had had in a long, long time. And I said the words, God help me. And you know, when I said those words, I felt better. Somehow I knew that night that my life was going to change. I also knew one other fact that night I knew after that that I no longer wanted to die. I am a survivor, and that is the reason that I'm here today. I started going to al meetings after that on a regular basis. And I accepted that I was powerless. And I think I also came to that night. And it wasn't too long after that that I came to believe. Because after that I believed that there was a power that could change my life. Up until the time that I had got into al and started coming on a regular basis, I did not believe in God. And if you had asked me, I would have told you my opinion of God, because he was nowhere that I could see. I couldn't see where he had helped my life any. And I wanted you to feel that way, too. But I came to believe in a higher power. And when I did that, for the first time in my life, I knew about the peace that passes understanding. You know, my life didn't change without my doing something. You know, I just didn't sit in those meetings and get better. And I thought for a long time that that's all I had to do. But I found out that I had to choose a sponsor, and I did that. And she was tough. Sometimes I didn't know what to do or what to ask. And she would tell me, just sit and listen. Just listen to what the other people are saying. Sooner or later, you'll hear your story. You know, it hasn't been but a couple of years ago that I listened to a fifth step and she told my story. And it was a wonderful feeling to sit there and talk to her and to know that Someone else had lived the same kind of life that I lived. And as I came to believe in a higher power, I also became to believe in myself as a person because I started changing. You know, when I started working those steps, when I started looking at me, when I put the focus on me instead of someone else, then I began to feel a lot better. You know, I tell myself sometimes, you know, Who am I? Who am I? And I know who I am today. I know where I am today. I know what it took for me to get here. And I know what it would take for me to get back exactly as I was. And I don't want to take that chance. I go to meetings on a regular basis. I work with other people. I do what I'm asked to do when I'm asked to do it. And sometimes I get tired and I have to take some time out for me. And I've learned in this program that that's okay. You know, one of the things that really baffled me when I got into this program was detachment. You know, I got so detached one time I could have flew off into outer space, I think, because nothing that happened seemed to penetrate my Praying for a while, and when they first started talking about detachment, I thought, you know, I've lived with him all these years. Does that mean I'm going to have to leave him now? You know, gradually, as I started working the Al-Anon program, my husband was working his AA program, and, you know, things were getting better in our life. My children were changing. Our relationships were coming Different, and I remember one day my daughter putting her arm around me and saying I love you and it was the neatest feeling in the world you know Al-Anon doesn't shield you from hard times either because there's been a lot of tough times since I got into this program you know I watched my 21 year old daughter one day try to kill herself I walked into her bedroom and found her suicide note and her asking me to take care of her little girl. And I thought at that time that that was the worst thing that could happen because I questioned God then. But you know, at one point, it turned out to be a blessing because I had her precious little girl. And through that little girl, I have learned what love is all about. I kept her four years. Her mother didn't die. She was like me. She's a survivor. But I learned to sit down on the floor with her and play if I wanted to. I learned to go places with her and, you know, just to be there when she needed me. And I knew that she loved me without any doubt. So that turned out to be a blessing. I believe that God puts things in your life sometimes that look like tragedies that turn out to be the biggest blessing. I know a couple years ago I went to the doctor and he told me that I had cancer. And I thought, God, this is awful. But you know, I didn't fall apart. I knew that somehow that I was going to be all right. You see, a couple of nights before the doctor had told me I had cancer, My mother came to me in a dream. And for the first time, she put her arms around me. And she said, you've got cancer. My mother had died of cancer. She said, but you're going to be all right. And, you know, I didn't doubt it after that. I had always wanted my mother's love, and that night I had it. And I didn't question it. I have a relationship with my husband today that is different than any I have ever known. I think it's the relationship that God gives to a man and woman when they're meant for each other. You know, sometimes we're talking, and I can finish the sentence for him because I know what he's thinking. And sometimes he does the same for me. You know, we laugh today. We have a good time. You know, in Corinthians, it talks about faith, hope, and love.
1: You know, through the program of AA
0: and through the program of Alanon. I have got all three. You know, when I see you sitting out there looking at me, I feel your love. I don't doubt it. You know, I wondered for a lot of, time, a lot of times, you know, how people really saw me how they really felt about me. And you know, when I had cancer, God gave me that opportunity too because I've never felt such an outpouring of love from the people in our group and in different places in the state. And when I got where I could sit up after surgery and look at the cards, all I could do was sit there and cry. And You know, my husband would pat me on the shoulder and he'd say, It's okay. And he didn't say anything because he understood, and I knew. I knew that I was a person, and that he loved me. I knew that God loved me, that he had always loved me. And I know what it means to be happy, joyous, and free today. And I treasure my program above all things, because I know without that that I wouldn't have anything else. You know, when I get up in the mornings, I get down on my knees and I ask God, help me to do what you want me to do today. And at the end of the day, I mentally go over my day to see if I've done anything to hurt anyone. And if I have, I make my amends before I go to sleep. But there's a thought that runs through my head every night before I go to sleep. And I close my talks with this thought because it's very important to me. I cannot hide myself from me. I see what others may never see. I know what others may never know. I cannot hide. And so whatever happens, I want to be self-respected and conscience-free. Thank you for asking me.